Hello, protocols, packets, and programs. It's that time when, once again, we must ask, Conan, what is best in DevOps? To clash dependencies, to see them versioned before you, and to have a compilation of their source code. Which means, this week we chat with Lena Lau about an incident responder's view of AppSec, the threats, the breaches, and the vectors from MFA to supply chains. In the news segment, MFA goes away. Prototype pollution gets its day. OWASP adds a guide on AI, security testing that lets checklists pass by, and more. Contemplate this, and stay tuned for Application Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. It's the show to learn the latest tools, techniques, and processes necessary to understand DevOps, application security, and cloud security. Your trusted source for the latest application security news. It's time for Application Security Weekly. Your organization is building and updating business-critical web applications faster than ever. And with so much pressure to move fast, you may find yourself making trade-offs between innovation and security. Now you can build fast without sacrificing security with Invicti, the zero-noise application security platform that helps your dev, sec, and ops teams work together to secure every website, web app, and API. With unparalleled accuracy, coverage, and automation, Invicti scales like no other AppSec solution. Invicti, AppSec, with zero noise. Visit securityweekly.com slash Invicti. This is episode 230, recorded February 27th, 2023. I'm your host, Mike Shima. I'm here with John Kinsella. Hello, John. Conan, how are you? <laughs> Doing well, because we also need to introduce Akira Brand, who's with us this week as well. Hi, Mike. Great intro. <laughs> Thank you. We also have a great announcement. A Security Weekly listener saved $100 on their RSA Conference 2023 full conference pass. RSA will take place April 24th through 27th in San Francisco and on demand. To register with our discount code, visit securityweekly.com slash RSAC2023 and use the code 53UCYBER. We hope to see you there. Lena is the director of Sintra and a principal incident responder at SecureWorks. She has led multiple complex international cases covering various sectors, including defense, utilities, banking, resources, and manufacturing. In the course of her career, Lena has led the largest cases in the APJ South region, including several nation-state APT cases. Prior to SecureWorks, Lena was the incident response and threat hunting lead for Accenture Australia and New Zealand. Lena has presented at several international conferences and groups, including SANS, B-Sides Melbourne, AWSN, and has also authored a book on cybersecurity. She's on the advisory board for the SANS CTI summits and holds several certifications. Hello, Lena. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Mike. Happy to be here. We're very happy to have you because I think you're the very first person who's come on from an incident responder's point of view. Uh, so you get to tell us all the ways that applications have gone wrong and been compromised. Uh, but with that said, maybe you could give us a little bit of a background on some of the type of work that you've done and some of the, especially in, in the region and maybe some, um, what, what does it mean to be, you know, incident response or an incident responder? Yeah, sure. So the cases I generally work are for large public companies. So, I mean, in terms of breaches, I see it covers a lot of various different things. Like supply chain is a really big one that I've been seeing pop up in the last few months. I know it's only been two months this year, but <laughs> I would say like the last six months or so, there's been a lot of supply chain style attacks. Uh, in terms of 
trends that we're noticing, we are seeing a lot more cloud attacks being abused, especially from 2021 onwards. Uh, there's been a massive increase in the types of cloud-based attacks we've seen. So the, 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 there's a bunch of different ways to go there. Let's just start with the cloud, since you'd mentioned that now. Is Especially since 2021, are, are these cloud misconfigurations or these breaches, are we still dealing with misconfigured S3 buckets, which feels like 10 years old by now? Or are there other interesting things or unfortunate things that are still happening within the cloud? I think it depends on the threat actor mm. uh, and their sophistication levels. So if it is an exposed S3 bucket, then naturally that's going to attract a lot of opportunistic threats. But in terms of... Uh, cloud in general and what we're seeing, we're seeing more techniques that involve persistence in the cloud and, you know, creative methods of performing credential dumping in an on-premise environment that leads to cloud compromise. We're now seeing cloud being kind of the end goal for a threat actor versus just something that they attack by itself. Uh, from 2021 onwards, the attacks used to be mostly phishing, uh, business email compromise. You know when they send someone an email and they try to change the invoice, like the account numbers and things? It used to be more that kind of attack, but now it's moved on to methods of bypassing MFA. Uh, I think a lot of people aren't aware that even though you have MFA in the cloud, it doesn't actually stop a threat actor from compromising a credential. There's ways to log in as you without using your MFA or triggering your MFA token. MFA sounds like one of those things that is always recommended, important, but it's not necessarily uh, the uncompromisable, I want to say, or it, it, we, we can't just end our work there. Tell us a little bit about, you know, if we have MFA, things that we should still be aware of in, in that area. Yeah, sure. So I think a lot of organizations think that MFA will prevent, you know, someone taking someone's potential credentials and logging in as them because they think that the prompt will protect them. But the issue with cloud is every single time a like single sign-on is enabled, there's something called a primary refresh token that's automatically stored on the endpoint. And so the implication of that for a threat actor would be a threat actor could land on someone's workstation and pull that token and then use that token like Similarly to the pass the hash attack, there's pass the token attack. So they can pass that token and then land into that user's uh, cloud environment. And there's so many more methods than that. That's just one method. Uh, you know, you can steal cookies from a browser where a user has logged into Outlook or logged into some kind of, uh, you know, AD joined thing. You can also go and steal tokens from their web app, like their applications. For example, if you've got Teams, PowerPoint, and that's logged into your, uh, with your Active Directory credentials, then a threat, act a threat actor can dump that process and use that to steal your token as well. So from the perspective of a threat actor, they land on a system. They don't necessarily even need to target LSAS or any uh, high privilege uh, okay you know, process, they can just go pull it out of your teams, teams.exe, pull out your token and log in as you, which I, is really interesting to think about. It, it is. And I think th that's a great highlight because when I asked about cloud, you know, misconfigurations, the S3 buckets, that's 
definitely kind of, I'm going to guess, kind of a low sophisticated smash and grab type of approach. Whereas mm-hmm. you all, you clearly have dealt with more sophisticated threat actors as well across the spectrum. And I'm going to guess, especially if they're going after tokens and after cookies, their goal really isn't just to find a whole bunch of data sitting in the S3 bucket. What, what, what are some of the goals that they are trying to do? Uh, so I would say from 2021 onwards, the two nation states, uh, the two countries that allegedly have been targeting the cloud, uh, I would say would be Chinese threat actors and Russian threat actors. I, we've actually seen a bit of a lag. So Russian threat actors abusing various methods like backdooring, uh, pass-through authentication. Uh, then six months later, we see Chinese threat actors using similar variations of the same approach. The, in terms of their end goal and what they're trying to do, usually it's some form of espionage and some form of just, they just sort of sit there on the system. Sometimes they steal information, they access documents, uh, but generally it's, it, it, it's not so much exfiltration that you think where they're downloading gigabytes and gigabytes mm-hmm. of files. It's specific documents and things they're looking for. So, so it's very true. So the, so the, the, the P of persistence actually does does reflect reality then? These attackers just trying to have credentials sit on the network for a long time. Yeah, and then they, they use the cloud in that way because there's so many different persistence mechanisms in the cloud uh. and they, they use that to kind of stay in the environment. What's interesting though is if you think about... <clears throat> Traditional remediation. Um, I think most companies think too literally about on-prem. They think, okay, let's reset all the passwords. Let's uh, get rid of any malicious services. But they don't really think about it in terms of if you reset someone's credential in the cloud, it doesn't nullify their token. Uh. You have to reset the token. So if a threat actor's gone and stolen all your tokens and you've just gone and reset someone's password, it doesn't get rid of their access. So I think there's just a like a, a lot of uh, like a lot of thinking that needs to be done in terms of someone's incident response playbook and how how you apply your existing one to the cloud. Yeah, we've got a story really similar to that in the news this week. I think um, around someone was able to get into a um, it was an npm module that was hosted on GitHub, and the guy had like everything set up right, like he had his multi-factor authentication tokens and all that type of good stuff, um, but still they were able to find that like a CI key CI token. And still, just bypass everything else, and it's it's one more one more mole to look for in the whack a mole game. <laughs> yeah, it makes it harder too because uh, currently the way that Microsoft tracks or logs logins using tokens isn't it doesn't really help you differentiate between a good login using a token or a bad login using token. It, but, it's difficult to track. I mean, I was thinking as you're as you're talking through some of that, it, it's I mean. From an AppSec point of view, the reason that people are using those, the developers are, are using that pattern of a token is that they don't have to authenticate every single time, right? So I can sort of see where they wouldn't be tracked as, as carefully or they're, I mean, it, it's supposed to be a light compute um, mm. concept. So the last thing you want to do is start making it heavy. So um, yeah. I don't know, I've been trying to think, how would you, how would an apps, how would a development team um, mitigate this really? Um, if there, if people listening to this right now are trying to figure out how to get, you know, how to do it right, how this is, isn't a problem, how do they sort of code around that? Yeah, I think the I think the trick is to make sure that the security team have detections in place for everything that happens prior to the token stealing. So immediately, if someone lands onto a system and you know 
that it's a compromised set of credentials or, you know, it's an HR user randomly dumping processes, uh, that should trigger alarm bells. And hopefully they have some kind of EDR, XDR tool installed that allows you to watch via the command prompt what someone's doing. Uh, but in terms of the lead up to it, it's, it, it, you should be able to detect things around it before it and after it that can allow you to contextually figure out, okay, it's most likely they've stolen this person's token. And even if you can't prove it, I think companies should err on the side of caution and still, do, still refresh the tokens. That's a great point in terms of the, the the preparation as well. I want to lean onto that as a little bit in addition to from the developer perspective, what can we do about improving logging or making sure applications are generating logs? You mentioned, you know, the the, the device centric XDR EDR example. Um, but what what other tasks in here? I'm thinking of like tabletop exercises. Do you see those? How successful do you see those? Do you see those as working well? with teams and do developers even get included in those? And I'll stop there with three questions in a row, see if you can remember all of them. <laughs> yeah, so I would say, so firstly, tabletop exercises are a really great method. Ah. Uh, it's actually really funny. I've had tabletop exercises where we've simulated a specific incident and then that exact incident then occurs. I think this happened like a year and a half ago. We simulated an insider case and that person, that insider who then was the insider wasn't a part of the tabletop exercise. And then four months later, they had an insider case that kind of followed a similar trajectory to the point where we thought it was a pen test or something because it just the coincidence is bizarre. <laughs> but yeah, tabletop exercises are a great way for companies to uh, have a think about how much preparation they've done around certain attacks, what gaps are missing, maybe playbooks that they should be building or specific gaps in detection that would lead to them not being able to identify some kind of threat. So speaking of those threats and with those, you know, tabletop uh, exercises in mind, what are some good ways just to even just to prepare for those exercises or, or what, what does a good exercise look like from your perspective? I think the best way to prepare for a tabletop exercise is to have a look at what your current processes are. So what playbooks do you have built? Do these align with the new attacks that are occurring in the wild? Uh, how aware is your security team of the new attacks that are emerging? And how confident are they in terms of detecting and preparing for it? And then modeling those attacks based on what you know about your own organization what sect what you know what industry sector are you in how large is your organization what countries do you have offices in what are the types of threats you're most likely to face not just in terms of opportunistic threats but also targeted threat actors uh, then using that to figure out what techniques are most likely going to be used against you and then those are the tabletop exercises that will run but in terms of figuring out what tabletop exercise to run, uh, generally the consultant or, you know, whatever MSSP you work with will figure that out. Okay. And, and some of those techniques would be, broadly speaking, like the cloud, I say in air quotes, because that's perhaps a little bit too ambiguous or MFA token stealing. What, what might be some techniques that, actually, let me ask it this way. Are there any techniques that tend to surprise you or that you find interesting that, that you've come across? Okay, I would say the two techniques that are the most interesting would be the golden SAML attack and something called pass-through authentication abuse. Uh, these have been leveraged by nation-state groups just from 2020, 
I'd say 2020 onwards, we've seen. Uh, I'm sure everyone's aware of the Solowinds breach, etc. Some of these methods were present in those breaches. The way that it works generally is in a hybrid environment where you know, someone has an on-premise AD environment that's linked to the cloud. There's an ADFS server, a server that manages, you know, the connection between the two. <clears throat> based on how that server is, uh, basically, based on how that server is made or what method they choose, whether it's pass the hash or, uh, sorry, not pass the hash, pass the authentication, etc. It introduces a lot of attack vectors. Like, for example, a threat actor can come and they can backdoor the pass-through authentication agent that's used for authenticating someone to the cloud. And they can automatically approve every single authentication method, or any, any kind of credential, even if it's the wrong credential. You can backdoor the agent to just basically do whatever it is. So we've seen threat actors install malicious DLLs, inject them into the agent uh, with the golden SAML. It's, it's where you basically, you get to the point where you're able to impersonate any kind of user in the environment. So you can start pretending to be a global administrator. You can be an enterprise admin. You can basically impersonate any user in the environment. And the really difficult thing about these attacks is generally it's difficult to detect because if you're, uh, I mean, for the average organization, when they set up ADFS, they kind of just use the logging that is default on the server because there's so many different like logging settings you need to enable. Most companies don't have those enabled, which makes the detection of these attacks really difficult, extremely difficult. Yeah, and it's definitely a the the the, the poor history of Microsoft being being the the, the focus here with the Golden SAML <laughs> ADFS. But you're really highlighting the, that aspect of a primary target is definitely the theme of grab credentials because even with golden saml if you can mint your own tokens you don't even need to backdoor any software you don't need to do something super sophisticated like a, a solar winds yeah. uh, so i'm curious with that in mind talking about the incident response processes itself too i'm curious how does the size does the size of a company influence how easy it is for you when you come in and do that response, meaning they have that extra logging turned on for ADFS, like you mentioned, or they have something else deployed. What, what, what does that look like from your perspective? I would say it depends more on the company culture mm. uh, and how they view security and just how much budget they allocate to security and just how educated the teams are about security. I've worked with large like public companies where they they have like two security people and just a whole bunch of like an infrastructure team, applications team, service team. And that's kind of what they deem as their security team. Oh, wow. So there, there's not too many processes there. Conversely, I've worked with teams, uh, large enterprises where they have a massive security team. They've got purple teaming set up. They, they have their own IR team. They have their own, you know, they have their own incident team. They have a war room set up. They've got processes. It just honestly depends on the security culture, which makes sense, I guess. It, it does make sense. And I'm curious then too, so with that culture, what are good ways of then building up that culture? What are good ways to be able to handle an incident with you better? So a company says, we take security seriously. And then, by the way, Lena, we need your help. Something happened. W what are some things that they could do to make sure that culture is in place to say your job is easier to come in and answer those questions that they have? 
Yeah, I would say a, a lot of it is based on automating very repeat, repetitive tasks. Mm. Uh, a lot of people get fatigue working in cybersecurity because they're dealing with similar incidents every day yeah. or they're opening and closing tickets or dealing with false positives. I think it leads to a lot of burnout and takes away a lot of someone's passion for their job. So I would say automating the mundane tasks or finding a way to lower the amount that someone is you know, exposed to that kind of work and bringing in more exciting tasks or introducing someone to newer concepts or newer things, uh, that tends to excite people. Otherwise, if someone's sitting in a sock and they are focused constantly on the same old attacks like Mimi Cats or Cobalt Strike, or you know, it gets to a point where it just becomes extremely mundane and it also leads someone to make errors in their job because they... they they just kind of, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like psychologically. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely see that. I'm curious too, from when you come in, for example, what about, are, are there information tools that they present you or maybe what's the first thing they start to talk about? Because I imagine in some cases, in many cases, there's the, the, the fog of war, if you will. There's just a lot of uncertainty, a lot of stress, uh, how does does that yeah. get turned towards you or towards the incident handler? What what are good ways to be nice to your incident handler? <laughs> I would say, yes. Uh, if depending on how big the case is and how much money is on the line for the organization and how and potential jobs on the line, it definitely translates to a lot of stress from the people on the call. Uh, I've definitely had aggressive phone conversations with clients, but that's more just frustration towards the situation uh. that they have. I think it's I think it's human. I think it's normal. I think if you work in IR, you should be aware of that and empathetic towards how people feel because it's a really difficult situation for them to be in. Like for me, I, I, I've worked so many incidents, I don't really react to it anymore. Uh, but for them, it could be like a really massive thing that's happened to them. And that they're nervous about their job and it's like a big deal for them. So I understand why they get emotional. I think the key thing though is to remember that that's the reason why you need playbooks because in moments of extreme stress and anxiety, it's easy to make mistakes, overlook things and make decisions that don't follow the process guidelines that end up biting you in the ass later on. But that's kind of why you would bring it, bring on an an external incident response consultant or an MSSP, because that's kind of their job to tell you what you need and what you need to do. And a lot of the times during these incidents, you end up finding, uh, you, you end up, you know, you may, you start breaking normal business process, like you start turning off things or disabling applications mm. with, without following the normal change process. But a lot of the times we see companies don't record those things later on. So after the incident finishes, there's a whole bunch of changes that's happened in the organization that they haven't necessarily kept track of. And it just creates a lot of work. Yeah, not repeatable is chaos and, and even worse. Um, I, I know, Kira, I think you've got some questions here too. Yeah, um, Lena, I was curious, like, how do you mitigate this business disruption? Like, how do you make this as least disruptive as possible? Uh, like during and during incidents in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I would say the first thing is setting expectations with the client. Depending on the nature of the case, remediation could take months. Uh, we've had cases where remediation has taken four to five months, and a lot of clients are in the headspace 
uh, that remediation can happen immediately and the incident can happen within a week. And generally, that's not the case. So I think it's about setting expectations and letting them know that this is going to be for the long haul and just providing support for the client and running them. I think the key thing, honestly, in incident response is over-communicating. Mm. So just making sure that you're communicating everything that can happen, uh, giving giving people advice in terms of what you've seen in terms of threats and how they normally play out. And then that gives them a benchmark of what to expect. You, you mentioned the time frame of a few months, and my mind goes to the the, the recent news about poor GoDaddy, who was uh, perhaps a multi-year <laughs> type of breach. Um, yeah. I'm curious, though, a lot of what we started talking about were S3 buckets, cloud, um, technical aspects of the compromises. But just now, too, you were talking about a lot of the people management, if you will, skills towards handling, you know, clients that are very worried in high-stress situations. So if someone wants to get into the incident response field, what are some of the skills or even tools that you would point them to that are important to develop either early on in their career or as they become, you know, more senior? Uh, I would say if for someone just starting out wanting to get into incident response, I think technical skills are really important to develop first. Uh, I would focus on where you think the industry is moving towards. We're in a space where cloud attacks are only just beginning. Because Microsoft makes so many changes to Azure, you know, they, they, they create so many various new things. It introduces a lot of attack vectors that are still largely undiscovered. And it's only just a matter of time before new techniques emerge. Even just in the last year, so many new techniques that no one knew about have emerged and have been seen in the wild, which is really interesting to note. So I would recommend someone new in the industry to focus on where we're headed and develop technical skills early on in areas where there aren't a lot of technical skills in the industry. That will give them a competitive edge when it comes to uh, looking for a job and trying to stand out in front of other people. Then I would focus on understanding the industry a lot better. So if their goal is to work in incident response, I would encourage them to speak to someone who works in the field and get an understanding of what a day in the life looks like. The soft skills are really important, but I do believe that people can develop that on the job. It It's hard to kind of teach yourself that without being in those situations, because it's one thing to imagine what a stressed out client would look like who spam calls you at 3 a.m. in the morning. And it's another yeah. thing to experience it and know how to do with it. Oh, dear. This sounds like experience you're speaking from. <laughs> so is that, do you think this is a field that a, 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 like a, a junior person like coming out of college, like say they just got like, I don't know, like a, a CS, not a CS degree, but like a CS specializing in, in computer security. So like, I think if IR is like, you have to have a bit of experience before you can sort of respond to something. And so what I'm asking you is, does does that sync with you, or do you actually think that more like someone who's new, there's still a space for in this in this part of the world? Yeah, I think it depends on the person and their personality. Some people have a natural penchant for it, and they can just hmm. jump straight into it. We've got a few people at SecureWorks that are college grads, and they've just jumped onto the job, and they're they're really good at forensics. Uh, whereas some people tend to need a more holistic view of security in general in order to work in IR. I think it just honestly depends on personal interest. I think having passion in the field will bring you pretty far, but you need to be able to deal with high stress situations. I think the key thing is someone's ability to handle stress. Uh, I think 
has a massive impact on how long they stay in IR and whether or not they enjoy it at the end of the day. Lena, I'm curious, you touched on this a little bit earlier too, with this high stress job, how do you best advise to prevent burnout? I would recommend people have hobbies. I have learned that pretty late in my life that I should get some hobbies outside of IR. <laughs> uh, I would say having some kind of routine, like wake up, make sure you work out, make sure you take care of your mental health, uh, make sure that you don't just work nonstop. Because, I mean, the incident's going on nonstop, but it doesn't mean you need to sit there nonstop because otherwise you're, you're, you're exhausted, you're not making decisions as well as you could be. And, you know, you, it, it, it affects how you communicate with people, how you communicate with your team and how, you, uh, how, how much empathy you have for other people. So I would say having hard stops and being aware of your mental health and building a routine where you are exercising, you're eating properly, you're not skipping meals, you're not just sit, sitting there staring at your computer which I think is normal for someone who just starts out an incident response because they're like, oh, wow, it's, a, it's an incident. I don't want to mess this up. And they get stressed along with a client and then they just kind of sit at the computer. But as you kind of do it more and more, you realize that there's always going to be an incident and <laughs> you perform better. Yes. You perform better when you're, you know, mentally there. Rested or prepared. Now, uh, definitely going to be curious about maybe what one or two of your hobbies might be. You also do a lot of training, so I'm not sure if that counts as a hobby as well, but that's definitely something very different from incident response. And I think it speaks to perhaps a way of sharing what you've learned and looking towards what are the developing types of attacks coming out there or what's the, um, you know, riding the, 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 the crest of that wave. Tell us a little bit more about what the training looks like and what you, how that kind of feeds into the, the skills you use in incident response as well. Yeah, I love I love actually building content and writing blogs and publishing research. And I've worked a lot of cloud attacks and I wanted to build training for that exact reason because I recognize that a lot of people aren't aware of the different types of cloud attacks. So, you know, I built a, a cloud attack matrix and, you know, listed out all the various attacks and then made content and training videos around how to detect these attacks, what these attacks are, how to perform these attacks. Uh, so it's focused towards red teamers and blue teamers. And I think it's really important because it's education is really hard. I mean, there's new attacks happening all the time, new threats emerging. As an IR person, you need to really stay on top of all these things because otherwise, if you're dealing with if you're still in 2023 doing dead disk forensics and looking at a single host, your mindset oh, doesn't wow. <laughs> match with the current time we're in. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like you, you should be thinking about IR in terms of scale, dealing with, you know, potentially 50,000 hosts at one time. How are you going to deal with a really large environment? Just the, the frame of the, your frame of thinking needs to catch up with what the current times are, which is why education is so important. And I, that's why I enjoy making training. Yeah, I think one of our producers, Sam, she became quite a fan of yours uh, last year, I believe, at DEF CON uh, in Black Hat. And you've got some more training. You know, give us a sense of what training you have coming up or some, some things that listeners could go find. Yeah, so I've got an entire online training course at Sintra.org where you can take my uh, attacking and defending against attacks in the cloud, Azure edition. Uh, 
I've also got training, live training happening at Black Hat. I'll be present at Black Hat Singapore and I will be present at Black Hat USA. I'm running trainings for two days at USA. Those trainings are IR focused trainings. So I basically simulate an entire incident from start to finish modeled after cases I've worked from Iranian, Chinese and Russian threat actors. Obviously, there's cloud components in it. And I give the attendees basically two days to figure out what happened. And I run them through how to perform the detections. That's pretty amazing. That keeps you quite busy. So do you have any time left over for some some hobbies? <laughs> Are you able to be well-rested for these incidents? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I do have hobbies. I, I enjoy working out. I exercise like a day. I really like going out in nature. I, do a lot, I play a lot of computer games. Yeah. Excellent. Just like your typical young person. <laughs> <laughs> Embrace it. Well, uh, we, we also ask all of our typical young persons, as well as all of our guests, uh, one final question <laughs> when they come on the show. And that is quite open-ended. Just describe AppSec in three words. And we're really curious from, from this IR perspective or just your perspective, what, what, how you might answer that. I would say a necessary evil. Mm, nice. Definitely a new and unique one, a different answer that we've gotten. Um, anything else? You, you mentioned the training. Anything else you'd like to draw attention to or highlight uh, before we have to let you go and run out to nature and the rest of your hobbies? I would probably pose a question to people listening and watching. How aware are you of the types of cloud attacks that can happen? Do you know if your organization can detect it? Can your are your security teams aware of what these attacks are, what they could be, and what they would look like if they are presented in the logs? And are you sure that you have all the logging enabled and pulled somewhere so that if a cloud incident did happen, you could see what happened? Can't improve on that. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Lena. I want to thank John and Akira. I want to thank all of our listeners. We're going to take a quick break now and return with news of the week. <laughs> 